All right, folks, this particular segment of our Eastern and Western Christianity episode, number 36, will be available for all because there's a lot of parts to this. And I think that the Fourth Crusade issue is probably one of the most misunderstood amongst the Eastern polemicizers against Rome. So I wanted to make it available for anyone who wanted to listen. And I also wanted to mention real quick that the resources file, which contains all of the references and everything we're going through and all the sourcing, sometimes it takes me a little while to put that together. So if you don't see it available, just check back later. It will be there. It's a lot of work. With that being said, let's move on and talk about the Fourth Crusade and some of the things leading up to it. Now, we're going to discuss more in the Fourth Crusade in the next episode, which will be back to members only, but the most important points we're going to touch upon here in this one. And first off, the most important thing I would say is that no side really looks great on the whole if you're coming at it from more of an ethnic battle. So, for example... We have issues surrounding various Italian groups, uh, the Frankish groups, the King of Hungary controlling the Croatia area, and then obviously Byzantium itself. And there's also some Germanic interests, and that kind of overlaps into the Hungary area. So there's a lot of different European nations involved in this, and you're going to see that some things are more understandable from each one's viewpoint, but they also all tend to do some things that are not so good. And within each, there is its own Ouroboros of devouring itself and splitting into factions. But having said that, are there particular ones that had that chaotic beast a little bit more contained? And most importantly, are there particular ones who had a bit more repentance or when faced with difficult questions and conundrums, they had a bit more tact and had their own reservations about their predicaments versus others who were a lot more defiant, arrogant, and unrepentant. And of course, centered at the heart of this from the polemics against Rome is the papacy. So the recap of the polemics that we hear often from the Eastern Orthodox is that the Pope basically ordered this crusade, it was his fault, and the Frankish kings were conspiring once again against the amazing paradise lost of Byzantium. And it's all Rome's fault and the West's fault, and Byzantium is just the innocent victim in all of this. That is the viewpoint we are trying to quote-unquote debunk as a bunch of crap and not going to help anything. And if you are on the Eastern Orthodox side, helping to diffuse that would be much more beneficial to you than enabling that and jumping on the bandwagon, because it's just not true, especially taking the same criteria of judgment as we've mentioned. Moving on, let's talk about the main players in this saga. And we will touch upon the massacre of the Latins at the start. And the Byzantine emperor Andronikos Komnenos is responsible for that. And he was a Venetian friendly, and you'll see why that's important later. He was uh, anti West, uh, anti unity in general, uh, a sleazy usurper. And he made attempts to infiltrate the Byzantine aristocracy and the Frankish aristocracy and basically trying to also foment coups against uh, the Byzantine emperor. And this is the guy, if you'll recall, if you've watched Occult Catholicism, this guy is Anatoly Fomenko's Jesus Christ. He thinks that this is the model of Christ 
that all of the history was based upon, based upon Anatoly Fomenko's theories. And these theories are often promoted by people in the alternative media. Now, this is very problematic if you are coming at it from a Christian perspective and you're trying to say that Fomenko's history is true because he's saying that this guy is the real Jesus Christ. (laughs) And he is leading a genocide against the Latins of the West or Roman Catholics in Constantinople. He's doing all these shenanigans of trying to usurp. He may have been even a pseudo-pedophile, all these bad things. So that becomes very problematic if you're promoting Christianity and Anatoly Fomenko's history. I don't understand why anybody would do that. Now, if you hate Christianity and you think that it's a bunch of crap, then I understand more why people would take his viewpoint. Although, like we talked about in occult Catholicism, he's very Masonic. And again, he's bashing the Jesuits and they're fabricating history, they're evil, blah, 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 blah. And everything goes back to the Alexandrian paradise lost. And that was so amazing. And he has all these Freemasons he references and whatnot. So isn't it interesting that he was citing, you know, weird Jewish Zionists and all kinds of different people that would be very suspect normally from the alt media's viewpoint, yet they'll side with this dude on his alternative history no problem. And does that go to show you that there's something very off about how all that works? So if you're more interested in that, go to occult Catholicism, go to the Fomenko's chronology section or whatever I called it. I don't remember. But nonetheless, this Andronikos Komnenos is kind of important in this whole saga. And we'll talk a bit more about him in the next part. Um, so moving on. We also have this dude named Enrico Dandolo, or Dandolo. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to call him Dandolo. He's the main dude in charge of the first part of this Fourth Crusade debacle and the sack of the city of Zara. And he is backed by the Venetian aristocracy, or he's tied to them. So the Venetians are very important in all this. Next, we have Boniface I, Marquis of Montferrat. I'm sure I'm butchering these names, but whatever. I don't have time to look them all up and their pronunciations. So he kind of takes charge for the Constantinople sack, even though Dandolo is still a part of this whole thing and kind of, you know, second in command at this point, it would seem. And we'll talk about that more again in the next segment. Um, And then on another side of the coin, where I would say (laughs) not even the same coin, We have Pope Innocent III, we have the crusader Simon de Montfort, who actually will be involved in the Cathar Crusades later and is central to that, so that's very interesting uh, considering our Cathar episode. So recall that when we talk about this guy because it's going to be very important in connecting those two crusades. And remember, we already said there's an interesting connection with the heresy that came from Constantinople and all of this dualism and one crusade going rogue, and one going and doing what it was told, right? That was the whole point. And then we have a cardinal, Peter Capuano, and also an abbot, Guy of Vaux de Cernay, I guess. And he's actually related to one of the abbots that was on the Cathar Crusades, documenting it that we referred to in that episode we talked about him. So it's pretty interesting that These guys are all against the Fourth Crusade going rogue, and a lot of them will be directly involved in the Cathar Crusade later on. And so this is a combination of Frankish and Italian aristocracy or crusaders and clergy. 
Um, then we also have particular Byzantine emperors that are involved in all this. We have a Fourth Crusade conspirer, meaning this guy was one of the reasons for the Fourth Crusade going to Constantinople, and the future emperor Alexios IV Angelos. Now, his father-in-law, Isaac II Angelos, he was deposed, and this is sort of like bringing his line back or avenging his uh, deposition or something to that effect. Now, these guys are saying they're going to end the schism of East and West. So they're pro-unity of East and West, but the methods in which they're going about it, well, they're not exactly the greatest, right? And so the Pope is not in favor of any of this. So even though the Pope wants a reunion, he's not going to go about it this way and have these crusaders go and do all this sacking these different cities. And then the guy they're trying to depose in this fourth crusade is the Byzantine emperor Alexios the third Angelos, so he's the target. So like we said, this is a Byzantine aristocracy battle that's intertwined in all of this. And those are the main figures. And then there's some peripheral figures. There's this guy, Emmerich, the king of Hungary, who has something to do with dominion over the city of Zara, where the first uh, rogue event happens, right? Um, and then there's some Germanic nobility that ends up being involved, uh, especially in some of the interests with this Byzantine emperor being put back on the throne. So those are kind of the main figures. And the main locations that are important is the Venetians, so Venice, uh, Zara, the Catholic city or Christian city in Croatia, um, or what's modern-day Croatia, Constantinople, obviously. And then you also have the papacy in Rome. You have the Frankish interests and then you have some Germanic or, you know, kind of in that Holy Roman Empire area, you know, Germany, Austria, Hungary, all that kind of area, that Central Eastern European area. So, with that being said, let's talk about the Fourth Crusade and the main factors um, and, you know, political issues or economic issues involved. Well, we have the Latins in Constantinople, and they have their own little Ouroboros. There's the Venetians, and they're generally speaking at odds with the people from Pisa and Genoa, right? The Pisans and Genoese, I guess. I think you say it that way. Whatever. That's how I'm going to say it. So generally speaking, the Venetians are at odds with those two groups, and these have to do with political and economic and especially mercantile interests. And the Venetians generally don't like the Byzantine Empire's instability of their governments constantly getting overthrown and everything kind of going to chaos because I guess that upsets their business or whatever. Now, there's aspects of all this that make the Venetians look pretty crappy, but at the same time, there's elements where they don't look as bad or there are noble intentions, but they might get uh, mixed in with some not-so-good things as most people can probably relate to. So not condoning that, but we're not trying to all out demonize any side of it. But like we said, uh, are there certain things that lead to bad stuff? And then you have to be able to admit it. Otherwise, you go full-fledged in the chaos when the arrogance or the blame game happens, and that just causes more and more destruction. So that's usually the way things seem to go, especially in these battles of different factions within Christendom. And so there's also the Byzantine Emperor Ouroboros, where certain emperors seem to favor the Venetians, like Andronicos Komnenos, 
the uh, Fomenko Christ. And then certain emperors tend to favor, it would seem, the Pisans and the Genoese. And similar to how certain emperors will favor Rome or be friendly towards the West, and others will be vehemently opposed to the West and, you know, go along with the clergy that calls, you know, the Western Church the Antichrist or whatever it is, right? So I'm sure there's various shades of gray in between those two polarities as well. Um, and some might be a bit more neutral. But nonetheless, there seems to be a bit of that uh, division going on in this whole debacle. And as we said, the guy who orchestrated the massacre of the Latins was generally anti-West as far as I understand, despite previously trying to marry into the Frankish aristocracy. But he, again, favored the Venetians, but did not like the Pisans and the Genoese. And they're the ones who cut the brunt of the massacre. And so, any shenanigans that come from the West against Byzantium, you know, the types of ones that the Eastern Orthodox will be angry about, and some of them more justly so, but like we said, when it's an all-out polemic without any context, that's the problem. Well, any of these shenanigans, be them Frankish or Italian, tend to involve Byzantine emperors and their own Ouroboros and struggles, and all these different competing Byzantine factions and interests. So as far as the Fourth Crusade goes, all of these shenanigans go against the Pope's wishes, which goes completely against the polemic that the Pope is this innovation and evil and, you know, all the Roman Catholics bow down to their God Emperor. And here's an instance where if the Catholic side did bow down to this supposed God Emperor, then Constantinople would not have been sacked and perhaps Byzantium could have been saved. And if anything, it's Byzantium's own Ouroboros that brought about this fourth crusade going rogue. And the Pope did everything he could to stop it, along with particular Italians and, more importantly, Frankish people or leaders who confronted this rogue crusade. And, again, that goes against the whole conspiracy theory that the Frankish people and kings are just conspiring against Byzantium and they're all evil and whatever. It's like those were the guys who were standing up to try to prevent this crusade from going rogue and attacking Constantinople or whatever was going on in Zara. So this is completely against that narrative, and it's actually the opposite, where the Pope and the Frankish leaders were the ones most vehemently trying to prevent this from happening. So if anything, they should be thanking the Pope and these Frankish people who didn't go along with the Venetians and Byzantine coup interests. So we also do have instances, of course, where Frankish elites do turn on each other and like we said, ones are more loyal to Rome, and the ones that are, are predicating it on Christian principles and not wanting to kill other Catholics or Christians, be them Byzantine ones or uh, Roman Catholic ones. But others go along with the Venetians and the Byzantine coup, and there's still even understandable reasons for that, as we shall see. So even the people who went to Constantinople or who were attacking Zara there's still actually some understandable reasons, despite, you know, in retrospect and from the Pope's perspective, being the wrong thing to do. And as we mentioned, their political and economic, namely mercantile interests from the Venetians and people in Constantinople and this Venetian block of traders in Constantinople. So there's a strange connection there. And the massacre of the Latins genocided mainly the Pisans and the Genoese. And this actually helped the Venetians 
And magically, a lot of these Venetians were kind of warned and weren't even there for the massacre. And they didn't even report on the massacre in their history books. So apparently it wasn't very important to them, which is very interesting. So as we mentioned, there are some Eastern Orthodox that will downplay the massacre of the Latins and look at it as a footnote in history. But the Venetians, who were the ones who were part of the Latins supposedly getting massacred, they didn't seem to think it was a big deal in their history books but they also benefited a great deal from it. So there's something funky going on with the Venetian interests in all of this. And what's even more ironic is it's that the Venetians who are most involved with sending the crusade to Constantinople. So that contradicts the narrative completely, where the Venetians are the one who benefited from the massacre of the Latins, but they are the ones who send the sack to Constantinople. And the ones who got massacred didn't really participate in that. So that is a very strange thing that is kind of a mystery, I think. Continuing, we have Venice and Constantinople who often don't like the Franks on the whole, and the French crusaders and the Venetian crusaders are going to have their own problems and battles. Even the ones from the Frankish side that followed through and suck it out to Constantinople, there still seems to be some tensions there, and they view the situation very differently. Um, on the whole. And speaking of which, a lot of these crusaders were really between a rock and a hard place because there's a lot of issues to how this whole thing started with financing and owing debts, which we're going to go extensively into. And many of them were completely unaware for the change of plans heading to these different locations because the hierarchy kind of kept it quiet. Um, so a lot of these crusaders just didn't know what was going on. They just thought, well, we're going to fight and and do something good for Christianity, but they were kind of being used as mercenaries because of some machinations of higher-up authorities, right? And that's usually the case and how it goes very often. And once you find that out, sometimes it's too late unless you want to basically <laughs> martyr your life, which is, of course, what Christianity is kind of advocating for. But when you actually get put in that place, you know, I guess that's a gut check time, right? And the first location of the Rogue Crusade going to sack the city of Zara there were some Venetian imperial issues, and apparently this city was under their dominion. They rebelled against it, and they were seen as really arrogant and nasty. Now, this is their viewpoint. I don't know the reality of the situation, but this involves the king of Hungary, who's supposed to be in control over this city. And so there's some political stuff going on there, too. Now, the Pope and the most important clergy, along with some French crusaders... And like we said, especially the ones who crusaded against the Cathars, they wanted nothing to do with this attack on Zara. Now they were there and the idea was to confront this city with kind of an intimidation, but not actually go to battle or destroy anything and just have a peaceful surrender of power. And that was kind of the plan, but how it all unfolds doesn't really end up that way. And it ends up just being sacked, uh, you know, on the whole. And that's what they've refused to participate in. And we'll explain how that all developed because it's pretty complex. But uh, nonetheless, it's not as black and white as a lot of those Eastern Orthodox polemics against this Fourth Crusade would have you believe. So let's move on to some of the reading and go through the Massacre of the Latins to begin with here. And we're going to source mainly from these two books, Byzantium and Venice by Donald M. Nickel and the book Enrico Dandolo and the Rise of Venice by Thomas F. Madden. So first off, let's take a few passages from 
the first book we mentioned, Byzantium and Venice. And this is all roughly from page 106 through 108. And the context here is that in the second half of the 12th century, um, we had the Emperor Manuel Comnenos. Again, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name right. You just got to deal with it if it's an error. Well, this guy's basically seen as a Latinophile because he is favoring the Latin merchants and, you know, the Western influence and allowing for some of their prominence in the courts. And so amongst the people in Byzantium who did not like the Latin culture, however justified or unjustified, and it says here in the book that the Byzantine culture's hatred of the Latins or Italians was the instinctive loathing of one race for another, compounded by envy and jealousy, though their priests and monks willingly provided them with many good and pious reasons for condemning all Westerners as misguided Christians. So the clergy were trying to say that all these Roman Catholics that are here, they're not really, I guess, good Christians, but they're misguided, right? So it seems that there was an effort to try to, you know, quell some of this angst. Um, But I'm sure there are others that uh, will see their true colors later that were uh, cheering on this massacre of the Latins when it culminates. So reading on how this all came to be is because we had the usurper, the Andronicos Christ, of whom it's admitted here, had led an adventurous and colorful career of treason and plot, imprisonment and exile. And he was already over 60 at this time, but he was known to be anti-Latin. And on that ticket alone, he could win much popular support in a bid for the throne. And in 1182, when this massacre took place, apparently he has this sort of military invasion of Constantinople. And it says the imperial fleet at first prevented him from crossing the Bosporus. Sure, I'm butchering that, but that's a straight in modern day Turkey. And apparently there was a collaboration with this Empress Maria, who was supposed to be a nun, but apparently uh, was kind of getting around and wasn't acting so nun-like. And so we have an unchaste nun teaming up with a dude lusting for the Byzantine throne, a match made in, well, somewhere. And I guess before making his way into the city, he went and tried to incite rebellion against the Latins amongst the people. And it worked, it said, the people needed no encouragement. With an enthusiasm fired by years of resentment, they set about the massacre of all the foreigners that they could find. They directed their fury mainly against the merchant quarters along the Golden Horn. And many had sensed what was coming with the arrival of Andronikos Komnenos and had already made their escape by sea. So this is the Venetians who kind of saw this coming, conveniently. And of those who remained, the Pisans and the Genoese, they were mainly the victims. Now, if you look up the Wikipedia article, it will say that it was mainly the Venetian and Genoese merchants, but that doesn't seem to be the case when I actually read books on it. Now, here's the interesting bit, or perhaps disturbing bit, if you will. It says, the slaughter was appalling. The Byzantine clergy shamelessly encouraged the mob to seek out the Latin monks and priests. The Pope's legate to Constantinople, the Cardinal John, was decapitated and his severed head was dragged through the streets tied to the tail of a dog. Lovely. And at the end of some 4,000 Westerners who had survived the massacre, they were rounded up and sold as slaves to the Turks. And if you go back to our COVID-1984 episode in the second hour, where we talked about the enslavement of Christians by the Turks, 
Christian slaves, Muslim masters, well, you'd know what that actually meant. You might be a, a sex slave for these Turkish pederasty culture oligarchs. And those who had escaped by ship took their revenge by burning and looting the Byzantine monasteries on the coasts and the islands of the Aegean Sea. So obviously, uh, that's fighting fire with fire, and we're not going to be too proud of that one from the western side. So it's a giant Ouroboros. And again, we talked about how earlier the clergy of Constantinople was saying, oh, these are just misguided westerners. Don't be too upset with them and their errors. And that goes on to them encouraging people to seek out specifically the Roman Catholic monks and priests and to have them slaughtered. And of course, they have the the leader, the cardinal, who has his severed head tied to a dog running around the streets. Ah, yes, Byzantium, paradise lost. So, once these Latins are taken care of, things are going to get much, much better, right? Well, it doesn't seem to be the case. And of course, we have the Venetians who somehow missed out on most of this wrath. And continuing on, it says, The massacre of April 1182 is most fully described by William of Tyr, who reported what he had heard from refugees. There are two Greek accounts of it. And the Italian sources, which is the interesting part of this, however, are strangely reticent. One Pisan chronicle mentions the event, and the Genoese were later to claim substantial damages from the Byzantine authorities, but this is important. No contemporary Venetian chronicler alludes to it, and we're going to find that confirmed in the other book we'll look at in a little bit. And then it talks about one important document that apparently... Uh, the conclusion from it must be that very few, if any, Venetians were affected by the massacre and that, therefore, their colony in Constantinople had not been fully reestablished by 1182, and for its inhabitants, they would hardly have been spared because of their Venetian blood. So somehow, the Venetians mostly get out of this unscathed and they miss this massacre. Now, you can say that's pretty convenient, or is that some sort of divine providence, for whatever reason, they are going to actually benefit greatly from this massacre of the Latins. And we'll find out that Mr. Andronikos Komennos is kind of their guy. And the point made is that if they had been there, they certainly would not have been spared because they were part of the Latin culture. And the aftermath is Andronikos Komennos comes to power and he starts snuffing out anybody else who is a threat to his power uh, one person's convicted of conspiring against the state. She's murdered. That's the daughter of Manuel, the former emperor, I believe. Uh, there's another person whose husband came to a mysterious end by poison. And then the patriarch of Constantinople was basically kind of forced to crown him as emperor. Uh, there was a young prince who had a claim, Alexios, who was strangled soon afterwards. And Andronikos completed his triumph by marrying his widow, Agnes of France. And remember, this is the girl who's really young. She was only 11 years old, and she was the last of the Latins in high places. So how can you allege a Frankish conspiracy when the massacre of the Latins is coming from a Byzantine emperor who hates Roman Catholic culture, but there's some French connection here that this guy's forcing to marry in and take over? Um, and maybe this will... Uh, foment some of the anger towards some of the Frankish nobility that did go through with the Fourth Crusade, the others that wouldn't participate in it. Um, at least it's going rogue. So that narrative doesn't make sense because there's so much complexity here that completely refutes it. So the Frankish conspiracy, the Pope in Rome ordering the Fourth Crusade, all this stuff is just complete crap. 
when you look at the buildup to this, especially dealing with this massacre of the Latin situation. And so the long and the short of it is that this Andronikos Komnenos, Fomenkos Christ, he basically commits genocide and he advertises himself as a champion of the people in the provinces. And he's basically promoting xenophobia, the Latins are horrible and whatever, and he manipulated the mob for his political purposes. But at the same time, he realizes he needs some support from the West, so he aligns with the Venetians. So despite his, oh, the Catholics or the Latins are so horrible, let's keep them out, he's doing backdoor deals with the Venetians and giving them all kinds of favors. So it's just a complete facade. And isn't it interesting that the Venetians are going to be the ones who you know, basically have their way with Constantinople later. It's really their campaign with some other interests that kind of unify. And in getting these Venetians back into Constantinople after this guy massacres the Latins, you're going to find this Enrico Dandolo guys involved. And a lot of the people who end up being involved later with the Fourth Crusade, a lot of these interests are tied to this. So again, the point is, this is like the Ouroboros devouring itself. And when you try to slap on this thing of like Byzantium good and the West bad, you're just missing the whole point. There's there's horrible things on both sides and then some honorable things on either side. But how does the Pope view all this stuff, especially when you have the Eastern Orthodox criticizing the Pope and saying that he ordered the Fourth Crusade or he was involved in it or whatever? And that's where the distortion really gets absolutely absurd. So let's move on for now to the other source on this issue, and we're going to talk more about the weird Venetian-Constantinople connection, and then maybe some aspects of Judaism tied to that in the next episode or the next segment. And so let's go to page 82 through 83 in the Enrico Dandolo Rise of Venice book by Thomas F. Madden. And we're just going to read a few passages and then summarize it, and then we're going to move on to the Fourth Crusade itself. So it states, It is commonly held that Byzantium and Venice struck a peace of some kind in 1179, so this is three years before the Massacre of the Latins. In truth, hostilities continued between the two powers well after that date. When Emperor Manuel I Komnenos died on September 24, 1180, he was still at war with Venice, and he left behind a 12-year-old son, Alexius II. That's the one that ends up getting murdered, I believe, by Andronikos Komnenos. And remember, this is the son who was forced to put his own mother to death because of Fomenko's Christ's pressure on him. This is all stuff we talked about in occult Catholicism. Um, but again, just showing you the sordid nature of all of this. And so, a series of rebellions ensued, tainted with the virulent anti-Latin hatred that ruled the streets of Constantinople. So, Fomenko's Andronikos Christ takes over, and to repay his supporters in Constantinople, wants to wipe the slate clean in the Latin quarters and genocide them all, and obviously that leads to the massacre. And it says that it was brutally efficient, and the Greek mobs poured into the Latin quarters along the Golden Horn, murdering, raping, and torturing their victims. The easiest targets were women, children, and the elderly, who were cut down mercilessly. And we talked about the Latin clerics and monks who were also massacred and the papal legate that was decapitated and his head tied to the tail of the dog. And apparently this slaughter so embarrassed Nisitas Cronitias, 
that he simply omitted it from his history. So there's a Greek Byzantine historian that just omits this whole episode from history because it's so appalling and embarrassing. Whereas we mentioned in the first part of this episode that some people on the Eastern Orthodox side of the overt polemicizing will say that the massacre of the Latins is over-exaggerated and they would rather it be omitted from history and don't think it was that big of a deal, which, again... When I look at all this reading and look at these different sources, that seems to be a pretty absurd opinion. And again, usually they have to do that because they need to build up the sack of Constantinople to be way worse of a disaster and to project that onto the Catholic Church as being the masterminds behind it or the Frankish conspiracy, as they usually allege. Continuing, Venice's alienation from Constantinople now seemed good fortune. The few Venetians living in the city in 1182 were by definition well-connected and therefore probably had an advance of the carnage. Our advance warning. And the only reference among Venetian sources to the massacre is tucked away in a commercial document made in Alexandria in June 1182. A Venetian merchant vessel bound for Constantinople was warned by other Venetians fleeing the city that if you do not flee, you are dead, because we and all the other Latins of Constantinople have been expelled. Venetian chroniclers made no reference to the massacre, and the Republic never requested restitution for damages from later emperors. Indeed, if anything, here's the important bit, the pogrom was a boon, with Pisa and Genoa now hostile to the empire of Byzantium, and the Normans preparing to renew their attacks, Andronicus had little choice but to turn to Venice for support. So I find it very strange that somehow Venice was able to miraculously avoid this whole thing, And it seems like they had advance warning and they didn't even want to write about it in their history books because they didn't like the people from Pisa and Genoa and they wanted a monopoly on the market. So they probably didn't have very much sympathy for it. So they didn't bother to write it into the, you know, uh, into the history either. So this is interesting. You have a Catholic side who doesn't want people to know about the massacre of the Latins either. So that doesn't fit the narrative of Rome, 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 West, 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 bad, bad, bad. In fact, that seems to play more into the hands of people like this Andronikos Komnenos, who incited rebellion against all the Latins, while conveniently the particular Latins that he wanted to do business with later were not there, and the ones that they wanted to get rid of were the ones slaughtered. So, you're actually falling for the same propaganda in retrospect that this guy was inciting to usurp and do all these horrible things and basically was a pedophile. So my question is, if you're on the Eastern Orthodox side and you're promoting this history of it's all Rome's fault and Byzantium was a victim and the massacre of the Latins wasn't a big deal, you're actually kind of promoting the same history as, you know, usurping pedophiles. And again, if you're on the alternative media Fomenko gravy train, well, you're doing the same thing, basically. You're calling this guy the Christ. Moving on. Last bit of reading here. Basically, once Andronicus released all Venetian hostages and promised to make installment payments on damage claims, for the Venetians specifically, he also restored the Venetian quarter to its owners, and the Venetians who had been doing business in the empire before 1182 were probably the first to return. They were not the last. Venetian merchants flocked once more to the lucrative city on the Bosporus that they knew so well. And this is where I get a little suspect because there's a strange overlap with Jews in Venice uh, and that also operated in Constantinople in these Venetian quarters. 
And so that to me is something that there's not a whole lot of evidence for collaboration there, but there are some suspicions that will go over in the next episode for the paid members. So to summarize, number one, we have a Byzantine historian who's so embarrassed by the massacre of the Latins that he simply omitted it from his history. Point two, the Venetians had power and influence in Constantinople, but they were a minority compared to the rest of the Latins that were uh, massacred. And three, many of these Venetians got warning of the coming massacre if they were trying to go there. And like I said, their competition, the Genoese and the Pisans, are the ones that got wiped out. Number four, the Venetian historians made pretty much no reference to this massacre of the Latins in their chronicles, nor did they demand restitution for damages later because they got so much benefits from it. And that leads to point five, if anything, this massacre was helpful for them. And point six, since the Pisans and Genoese were most upset by this, Andronicos turned to Venetians for support and gave them financial restitution that they never ended up asking for later. And they returned to their quarters and got all kinds of benefits to return to their mercantile empire and everything that goes with it. So that's the key. As I tend to find with most of these East-West conflicts, there were bad on both sides. On the Western side, the Venetians, and on the Eastern side, the Byzantines that just hated the Latins in general. And more importantly... Was the Pope involved in any of this? Did he have anything to do with fomenting all of this? I would say absolutely not. And that will be very important when we get to the Fourth Crusade, which we'll do now. So I'm going to summarize a lot of points that are important from chapter 8 in this Thomas Madden book. And this is pages 133 through 154. So this is going to summarize the whole account of the Fourth Crusade that deals with the siege of the Catholic city of Zara. And then, like I said, we'll deal with the Constantinople uh, debacle in the next segment. So starting out, we have a Fourth Crusade called to go to the Holy Land and help fight against the Muslims and take back these territories for Christendom, you know, in uh, Alexandria or Cairo or Jerusalem, wherever is being attacked. They're supposed to help this And this would greatly benefit Byzantium and the Eastern Orthodox successors. This would be a very favorable thing if it actually worked out. So issues arise right at the start. And here's kind of the context of it. And I don't really know who you would blame for this, but it's just an unfortunate situation. So what happens is we have these French crusaders and all these people being called. And then Venice is where they're going to depart from, right? That's the port town. They're going to get the ships. That's where they're going to head to the Holy Land. So the French leaders show up. Some of them are barons. And there's a bunch of different barons that are going to be, you know, uh, working together here. And these crusaders come to Venice. And then this guy, Enrico Dandolo, who we talked about, is, you know, involved with this Constantinople. Venice exchange on some level. He is the guy who's going to kind of spearhead this from the military standpoint, and he has all of these other uh, aristocratic interests in the Republic of Venice that are also kind of like calling the shots in a more political or logistics kind of sense. And so what happens is there's supposed to be a bunch of people showing up, and the French are supposed to uh, pay for their participation in it and all the supplies and the ships and that kind of stuff. The problem is they show up and they don't have enough money. They can only pay for so much of it. 
And so as the Venetians produced the fleet and the provisions that were requested by the French, well, not enough people actually showed up for the crusade and the payment was far short and they couldn't pay the Venetians. And so this Dandolo guy threatened to cut off the crusaders' food and water if they didn't pay, but it was an empty threat. It's not like they were trying to get out of not paying. They just didn't have enough of a turnout and that's unfortunate, right? So he couldn't really do anything to them uh, other than empty threats, uh, but there's still a lot of tensions going on, right? And so the Venetians couldn't finance the French crusade themselves because, well, it's kind of supposed to be their crusade, but they already rented out all the ships and done all this stuff and they couldn't, I guess, send it back. Um, and the French couldn't pay for it all. So this is an issue. And so how are the French going to get out of debt here? So. The idea was to go on a recruitment campaign and get more people so they could finally pay. But the problem was, uh, you know, as the time went on, it was going to get closer and closer to winter. And so they would be stuck there for the entire winter. They had to kind of leave before winter time, um, So the, the clock was ticking. Now, they did have a decent amount of money. They paid about 60% of it. They lacked 34,000 of the marks of the 85,000 that were owed. So to their credit, they at least paid most of it. And then Dandolo realized that the threats wouldn't do anything because they were dead broke. They had nothing more to give. Winter was coming. They had to figure it out. So the Venetians kind of got mad. And what they wanted to do, or some of them wanted to do, and we know the Venetians can be a little vindictive here, as we saw uh, earlier, and their lack of charity and un care for the massacre of their fellow Latins because they were uh, mercantile competitors. <laughs> well, you can probably see how uh, that might be a concern for some of these French guys. So the Venetians wanted to take this 51,000 marks as a penalty and basically leave the French broke because they asked for all this stuff and they couldn't pay it. So sorry, you called all this together and you're screwed, right? Now, apparently, some of the French people didn't like this because if they're not getting a crusade out of it, they're not going to give them all their money. And then some Venetians wanted to respond with violence. But apparently, the oligarchy there kept it all in check. It didn't let the uh, angry rage end up like another massacre of the Latins, but instead, it's the Latins massacring the Franks. <laughs> so, Dandolo didn't have the authority to make the final decision anyway, so the Venetian aristocracy had to calm things down. So, you know, plus one for them, they didn't let it get out of hand. So we're not going to bash the aristocracy here, at least the ones who are ruling in the Republic of Venice. The other aspect is that crusades were not always lucrative. In fact, usually they weren't, unless they were successful. So it's not like these crusades were called and they were going to go get a bunch of money. This was purely a religious thing, um, and it was a self-sacrifice. Uh, because if they went to some place like Alexandria or Cairo and they didn't capture it, then they wouldn't get anything and there was no financial benefit whatsoever. Maybe they were able to break down some of the Muslims' rule, but nonetheless, it's very risky. Now, there's another interest here where the king of Hungary, a Mr. Emmerich, whose rule was from 1196 through 1204, well, he's in control of the territory in modern-day Croatia in this city of Zara. And he was supposed to help on, I guess, several occasions, the crusade efforts, because the Pope is requesting all these monarchs help, right? Some of them did, some of them didn't, and usually the French kings seem to be the ones who were most willing to, it would seem. 
Um, and despite Byzantium or the Eastern Orthodox conspiracy theory about the Frankish kings being all evil, it seems, in my opinion, that most oftentimes those are the ones that wanted to help out the most. I'd have to do more research on it, but in this instance, it's mostly French crusaders coming, and then there's Venetians who are there too, but they're the ones who are going to manipulate it going rogue, not the Frankish ones. And so if anything, it's a Venetian conspiracy, but those Venetians are the ones that benefited from the massacre of the Latins and the anti-Latin sentiment. So again, that does not bode well for that Eastern Orthodox conspiracy theory. So anyways, back to this king of Hungary. Apparently, he only obeyed the crusade vows when it was convenient for him to gain papal favors. So when there was something in it for him to get from the pope, then he'd go on the crusades, but he wasn't really willing to sacrifice anything. Uh, for the ideal of it, the idea of Christendom in general. Uh, And then that's kind of contrary to the story of Christ, right? Where it's a self-sacrifice with no apparent material benefit uh, for somebody else. But nonetheless, uh, this kind of brought about the idea of attacking the city of Zara uh, because it was seen as a way to get payment from a city that wasn't performing its duty under a king who was being lax on his, you know, uh, kind of crusading vows that he pick and chose when it was convenient. So it's not like this attack on Zara was entirely unjustified. It's just how they were going to go about it because the plan was to try to intimidate them and not kill anybody and just basically have them give up the city and, you know, whatever. And so we're going to see how that all is uh, kind of the plan here, but it doesn't really end up happening as it all develops. And also, this Zara was apparently a bit of a wild city and rebellious, and like we mentioned, it used to be under Venetian control, but it was seen as treacherously rebellious and violent towards the Venusians, so it was hostile. So like I said, the idea of going there and kind of putting the smack down uh, or just intimidation wasn't necessarily seen as such a bad thing, right? And the idea was to get the extra money, and then also they wanted to restore order there. So it's not like they just wanted to go there just for money. They also wanted to stabilize the uh, city and, you know, restore order, which was a very Christian thing to do, right? And so (laughs) apparently the king of Hungary kind of knew it was rebellious, and he didn't even think this restoration of order was possible. So he asked the pope to intervene and stop this whole thing from potentially happening. Now, I guess the pope sided with the Hungarian king. And to Dandolo, he thought this was grossly unfair because in his Venusian mind, you know, they were rebellious. They were rebelling against the the Venetian superiority and, you know, screw the Pope. We deserve to go do it. So this guy is choosing his own will over the Pope's will, right? And so he saw Tsar as a Venetian possession and that this Emmerich guy was lax on his crusading vows and thus shielding Zara with papal protection this just wasn't a valid thing for the Pope to, to you know, try to impose on anybody. This is his own personal view. And I'm sure he had plenty of Venetian aristocracy that felt the same. And so, as we mentioned, Zara's siege was intended to be intimidation, not murder. And the compromise would be to pay for the Crusaders' debt so the French people could get their debts, you know, wiped clean. And they, you know, were able to then go to the Holy Land and establish the crusade mission or continue it on, right? And so the roundabout justification here is that they're still obeying the Pope by allowing the crusade to continue because if they can't get this money to pay, then it's dead in the water. So in a weird way, they're saying, well, we're going to obey the Pope on one thing, but not the other, right? 
Um, so it's seemingly justifiable in a way. And the French agreed to kind of take this middle road. But the other issue is how many of them had the full context of what was going on since Venice was really in charge of all of this. Um, and so the French leaders agreed, but a lot of the French crusaders apparently still thought they were just going to the you know, Middle East to fight. They didn't know they were going to take this detour. So, you know, a need to know basis, right? So they organize this all and they set off. And in my opinion, Dandolo kind of pulls a pilot here, a Pontius Pilate, where he says that this siege on Zara is actually the crusaders' fault because they showed up without the money. And so since the winter was going to set in, they needed a place to say Zara would also be the solution. So they're going to go to Zara. They're going to take its wealth, restore order, stay there over the winter, and then they'll go and do the crusade. And then the debt would be suspended and the siege would pay for it in the booty of the city. And then after the winter passed, they could complete their mission. And so Dandolo, now he's the leader under this conquest of Zara. Um, But beyond that, he wasn't supposed to maintain control over the entire crusade. So the agreement was Dandolo was going to lead this Zara Ho charge, right? But then after that, the crusaders could go and do what they needed to do. And apparently... No one was really in charge of these crusades. It was more of a, I guess, general agreement. It's like, oh, that guy's stepping up. All right, we'll just go with him. And this is kind of one of the problems, I guess, with the crusades in general. There wasn't any specific leadership. Um, Now, again, you could listen to the Pope and the clergy, of course, but I, I guess there wasn't really as much of an official established leadership. Like, that's your guy. That's the guy you listen to. It was kind of like, I don't know, a butting of heads and whoever seemed to win on that particular day <laughs> became the leader. And this is the day for Dandolo. Now, a little bit about this Dandolo guy. <laughs> interesting character. He seems to have a bit of a Christian heritage or pedigree and seems to have a lot of Christian motives um, mixed in with some maybe things that, you know, turn him to a... Uh, you know, an ends justify the means kind of thing that, you know, kind of is in line with the um, the road to hell being paved with good intentions, you know, uh, saying, right? This is kind of, I think, uh, something that really defines this whole thing. Now, here's the other crazy thing about this guy. He, at this time, was in his 90s, and he was also blind. He had some conflicts in Byzantium and Constantinople, and he went blind. Now, some people say he had this rage for Byzantium and Constantinople because of that, but apparently that's just kind of mythos and it doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, and so his motivations for later taking the crusade to Constantinople along with this other guy, they weren't really motivated by this vengeance, as a lot of people try to say that it was in popular history on this issue. Uh, that's one thing that this book Uh, you know, tries to make clear. So I thought that was interesting. But nonetheless, you got this blind 90-year-old dude who is leading this crusade to Zara. I just, I don't know, just just put that image in your mind for a second. I think it's really funny. Um, So in September in 1202, they make their final preparations to depart for this city of Zara and try to intimidate them into getting the wealth. Now, On the papal side and the Frankish side of things, where people are getting a little suspicious of what's happening, we have this papal legate named Cardinal Peter Capuano, who was one of the few there who knew the Pope had forbidden to use the crusade to attack Zara. 
So he's kind of in a pickle because he's with these crusaders. And if he stands up and tries to say, we can't do this, the Pope said so, then the Franks would end up having to stay in Venice for the winter. And they already kind of want to maybe murder them for not bringing enough money. (laughs) You know, you have to spend a whole winter there with them. You never know what will break out eventually. How long can the aristocracy keep their anger and rage contained? Um, So he's in a pickle, right? Between a rock and a hard place. So apparently the leaders who kind of knew about this from the Frankish side or the the Italian side that, you know, was in connection with the papacy, they kind of kept it hush-hush, but their plan once they got to Zara was that the French crusaders would not attack a Christian city. They would refuse. That was what they were banking on. And so they thought once they got there, they'd have enough of an intimidating force to, you know, get the money to pay. And as long as there was no bloodshed, you know, then they could go on and take the crusade to the east and, you know, get her done, right? And so that's the reason why this guy was silent. But apparently... You know, people started murmuring and it became known amongst the crusaders that this destination of Zara was where they were going. And then they start looking to the leaders saying, well, what do we do about this? And people started going to this Cardinal Capuano. And one of them in particular was a French cleric named Martin of Paris. And Capuano admitted to them that the Pope hadn't sanctioned this attack, but that he would overlook it due to a greater good of allowing the crusade to continue. So he's kind of like, I'm going to kind of speak for the Pope here. This is probably what he would say. And remember, back during these days, you couldn't just send a text message to Rome. You know, things take time. So it's a little bit more understandable, um, despite the uh, defiance, right? So is it kind of like a little bit of a legalism? Well, the Pope ordered the crusade. We're not supposed to go to Zara, but we're going to, you know, not... We're going to make sure we don't attack it and we're going to just, you know, get the money and and move on, right? An idealism sort of there. Now, apparently his father Martin wasn't having it and he was upset by this idea of attacking a Christian city and it was out of the question to him. And I'm assuming that maybe the defiance of the Pope was probably a problem for him too. Um, And so he asked to be relieved of accompanying the crusade. But Cardinal Capuano said, no, you can't leave. Uh... We're, we're going to see this out. And so it says here in, in the writings that he ordered Martin and his companions to remain with the crusade. And he also enjoined them to do all the things that they could do to stop an attack on Christians once the crusade was underway. And he gave similar counsel to others. Um, so again, he saw the crusade as a greater good and Zara as a necessary evil. And he apparently evidently hoped that once the crusade had landed at Zara and the French were informed of the Pope's prohibition of trying to attack Zara, they would refuse to take part in the siege. Whether they did or not, however, Peter would at least have discharged his duty to the King of Hungary and kept the crusade moving forward as well. So there you go. He's banking on the French will be good Christians and they won't actually attack the city and they'll be able to accomplish their goal. Now, Apparently, on the other side, Mr. Enrico Dandolo and his counselors saw this thing very differently. And it says that of Enrico and his posse's viewpoint, the departure of the fleet and the attack on Zara were not separate matters for them, but two sides of the same bargain. The Venetians were taking a great financial risk, bailing out the Franks for their troubles, and in return for their help at Zara. The department of the crusade fleet was predicated on that help, and from their point of view, Peter Capuano was a dangerous threat, saying, we're not going to help you participate, but 
we'll help you, you know, get the financing and, you know, intimidating, but we're not actually going to do any military action because that would be killing Christians. Um, so we, we were going to only bluff. We're not going to actually go through if they try to call the bluff. I guess that's the context here. And it says that he had the power to publicly condemn the plan to go to Zara at any time, yet he refrained from doing so while the Venetians loaded up the vessels and prepared for the fleet's departure. So the point is that Dandolo suspected that this condemnation and saying the Pope will not sanction this attack, uh, he's not going to say it until they actually get to Zara. And he's saying, though, that's BS. You've got to go through and attack with us if we need to. So Mr. Enrique Dandolo dismisses Cardinal Capuano and says, GTFO, I know what you're going to do. And he sends him off. And since Dandolo is in control of all this, Capuano really doesn't have much of a choice. So he goes back to Rome and he's going to tell the Pope what's happening. Now, another note I think is interesting. The attitudes of the Venetian crusaders weren't really documented. Uh, typical, the Venetians don't seem to like to document anything, <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. But apparently they found a testimony of this one guy, Walframe of Gamona. And he sincerely thought he was sacrificing his life for Christianity by going on this mission. So he wasn't aware that they're going to Zara, I guess. So this shows you the state of the infantry of the crusade, that they don't really know what's happening from the Venetian side of it as well. So let's move on to the actual crusaders arriving in Zara. Apparently they arrived in two groups on November 10th and 11th of that year in 1202. Now, the crusade was not as large as projected, but it was still kind of an intimidating force. And so the people of Zara knew that the crusaders were there to stay because winter's coming and kind of realized, oh crap, we got to surrender. These guys are way too much for us. So apparently the city immediately officially surrendered the city and its goods on the condition that the inhabitants would be spared their lives, which is exactly, you know, kind of what everybody wanted, especially... Uh, the French folks and the Crusaders, they didn't want to kill any of these people, and they weren't going to if they had a, you know, <laughs> a cardinal telling them not to. But now that he's gone, you know, it's kind of left up to the mercy of the situation. And so, for some odd reason, Dandolo, uh, when he gets this plea, uh, this is what they wanted. He says, let me think about it a while. I'm going to go back and discuss it with my camp, my associates. And so the text says, What did Dandolo feel he had to discuss? Surely the French barons would not have been opposing sparing Christian lives, and it is not clear that even the doge was required to confer with the French at all. The siege of Zara was a Venetian initiative in which the French had agreed to participate in order to defer their debt. Whatever the reason, the decision was a bad one, had he immediately accepted the Tsarin surrender, much of the trouble that followed could have been avoided. So this guy is delaying for some reason, even though he's getting what he wants. And this is the problem. And this is the most interesting part of all of this. I know there's a lot going on, but if you take nothing away from it, take this, because this will relate to the Cathar Crusade later. So Dandolo's delay led to a, quote, group of knights and clergy that represented a dissident faction of crusaders opposed to the capture of Zara. And so this delay is allowing these crusaders that don't want to attack the city and are basically going to obey the Pope, even if they don't know that's the Pope's official commands. 
So they're at least aligning with the consciousness of the Pope and the cardinal that got kicked out. Um, so it says that they were led by Simon de Montfort, a zealous man who would a few years later turn his sword against the heretics as the leader of the Albigensian crusade. So for all the people in history who bash Simon de Montfort for leading the Albigensian crusade and being this cruel, awful person, well, here is an instance where less than a decade before that, he is actually standing up to the leader of this crusade who they're not sure if he wants to attack the city or not. He's delaying. And he's basically saying, we're not going to do it. And think about it again. You're a minority faction and you're standing up against the guy who's running this crusade and all these Venetian folks that are next to him that already hate you. I mean, that's a pretty brave move. And it also said that there is reason to believe that several members of this faction had a close relationship with Peter Capuano and were dismayed when the Venetians blocked him from accompanying the crusade. So maybe they did know what the Pope said. There's a good chance of that, but I guess it's not really clear. But nonetheless, they're siding with the Pope to not commit genocide, to not cause destruction. And they got what they wanted. They got the goods, they got the wealth, and now they can pay off the debts. They can maintain control of the city. And then they can go and take on the Muslims in the Holy Land. And these are all things that would greatly benefit the Byzantine Empire. There would be no other Fourth Crusade debacle after this going to Constantinople, and they would get aid fighting the Muslim invaders. And this is all part of what the Pope is trying to basically get to happen, and the people following him, which are led by Frankish nobility. So the Franks and the Pope are not conspiring against Constantinople. In fact, they are defending it and doing everything they can to get these other rogue factions to not kill their own brethren. So, Eastern Orthodox polemicizers, you should be thanking the Pope and the Frankish nobility here for doing that. And in fact, if all of these Roman Catholics coming from the Italian states would have listened, then... The Fourth Crusade debacle would not have happened, and if they listen to the Pope, like these Eastern polemicizers seem to think everybody does, and they're just, you know, bowing down as slaves to a dogmatic Pope emperor, well, that would have been very beneficial to Byzantium. Unfortunately, that's not exactly what happened, but let's read further. And so, to summarize, even though Dandolo dismissed the legate Capuano and said GTFO, for his concerns on morality and not killing Christian and defending the Pope's orders, well, this guy was able to make it to Rome and tell the papacy what happened. And so it says, quote, At once, the Pope fired off a stern letter forbidding the Crusaders to attack Zara. It eventually came into the hands of one of Simon's partisans, uh, Simon de Montfort, right, the Crusader later for the Cathars, who's standing up to this Dandolo guy. Uh, well, one of these guys, uh, who was, you know, in his camp was a clergyman from France, right? The Frankish clergy, <laughs> the ones who were supposed to be conspiring, uh, this Guy of Vaux de Cernay. Now, again, this guy is, uh, his nephew is Peter, uh, of Vaux de Cernay, the one who accompanies the Cathar Crusades. Like I said, these guys are all kind of connected later on through the Cathar campaign. So we have a French clergyman, a French crusader, who are trying to prevent an attack, standing up to Dandolo, who's really seemingly concerned about payment here, despite mixed in with some 
you know, Christian intentions, but are the temporal ones kind of superseding that and mixing in and poisoning them? We'll let you decide. But nonetheless, Simon de Montfort informed the frightened Tsarins who were about to be sieged that the Franks, who were part of this crusade, would not help the Venetians capture the city under the protection of the church. Enormously relieved, they thanked Simon for his honesty and returned to the city. So, the Frankish people are doing the noble thing. They are not going to kill the Christians or attack them or do whatever. And the Pope is getting their back. And there you go. That would have prevented this whole thing from happening if everybody just listened. So, after Simon de Montfort talks to the Tsarins uh, on the side... Dandolo comes back and he tries to, I guess, negotiate the terms that, you know, he was pondering or he, you know, thought maybe he'd reject them, whatever it is. But instead, when he came back to try to meet with them, the French crusader leader, Simon de Montfort, stood up to him along with the French abbot. um, And they confronted him and they said, quote, I forbid you on behalf of the Pope of Rome to attack this city, for those within are Christians and you are crusaders. To ignore this prohibition, he continued, would mean instant excommunication. And basically it says Dandolo was checkmated, as the author states, and his refusal to allow that Cardinal Capuano to come along because he thought he might pull this later on, um, well, that led to him going back telling the Pope, and then he's absolutely set up to be excommunicated if he chooses to disobey this. And it says, quote, Dandolo and his countrymen were plainly upset. According to one report, some of the Venetians tried to kill Guy of Vaux de Cernay after he delivered his fiery denunciation. So they're trying to kill the French cleric who's trying to prevent this whole debacle. And it says they were stopped by the ready swords of Simon de Montfort and his companions. So the crusaders are standing up and defending the French cleric. So all the Frankish people who are standing up are the ones doing the Christian thing and are being virtuous and honorable. And again, this is flying in the face of the Eastern Orthodox who allege a Frankish conspiracy and they just had murderous intent and their eyes set on Byzantium. Here they're doing the exact opposite of that and they should be commended for it. And once again, they are following the Pope's orders. And once again, they will follow the Pope's orders later on with the Cathar Crusade that takes out the very heresy that came from Constantinople. And so Dandolo then turned to the barons, saying, Lords, I had this city at my mercy, and your people have deprived me of it. You have promised to assist me to conquer it, and I summon you to do so. So Dandolo is now defiant, and he's saying, we're going to take this city, and you guys promised. Now, apparently, a majority did agree that they must honor their word um, to go about this crusade and sack Zara, but it says... Only a few joined Simon de Montfort, who pitched his tent away from the city as to have nothing to do with the sinful act. So a remnant (laughs) of the soldiers joined the leaders who stood up to this guy and said, we're going to have nothing to do with it because it's sinful. And we're disobeying the Pope um, on something that relates directly to violating, you know, commandments, right? This isn't like disobeying the Pope because Pope Francis is saying, oh yeah, LGBT unions are totally cool. That's a completely different context. So, after a five-day siege on November 24th, the city was occupied and put to sack, but Simon de Montfort and this remnant from the Frankish side and, you know, a couple probably uh, Italian folks that went with them, 
they decided not to do this. And the men of Zara fled to the mountains where they were organized into guerrilla bands. And I'm assuming they probably encountered Simon de Montfort and his remnants because they were all camping out outside of the city. And then the winter came and the French were forced to hunker down with the Venetians. And apparently, the violence that they were worried about by not going on the crusade and having to stay in Venice, well, now they're basically locked up with these guys in a city that they don't really have much uh, control over and the Venetians and Dandolo are in control of. So I guess during these winter months, there was a lot of infighting amongst these French crusaders and Venetian ones. And during this time, the legates were trying to get the French absolved from this excommunication because they were the ones who actually felt bad about it. And they were actually looking for absolution and, you know, appealing to repentance uh, to get it from the Pope. Whereas the Venetians apparently were defiant and Pope Innocent became very angry with them. So even the Frankish knights that didn't go with Simon de Montfort and completely not participate at all, they were at least still repentant about the situation, whereas the Venetians were arrogant and think they're all in the right. And so moving on, we'll read a little bit more here as we start to wrap up. It says, quote, The Frankish barons immediately sent a delegation to Rome to plead their case to the Pope and to request a canonical absolution. The Venetians did not. Dandolo's refusal to beg forgiveness for an attack on Zara infuriated Innocent III, confirming him for the Venetians' evil intentions. Now, the author goes on to talk about how the Pope confirming the evil intentions of Dandolo and the Venetians, it's a little bit more complicated and not as black and white as a lot of historians make it out to be on this issue and kind of side with the Pope here. I don't know, you can read through the text here on your own or do more research on it to decide for yourself. But nonetheless, I personally don't think that uh, these Venetians really end up looking all that great in these instances. And of course, uh, they're going to continue on their crusade uh, once they meet with some other interests into going into Constantinople and doing the whole uh, Byzantine reconquista, if you will, of the uh, Byzantine emperor who you know, was kicked out and then they want to form a counter coup basically with the emperor's son-in-law. Now there's a lot more reading in this chapter and I don't have time to go through it all, um, but I'll summarize it. Um, there's a lot of back and forth battles once they're at Zara. Uh, eventually it leads to a destruction of the city, uh, except for the churches, which is kind of ironic um, considering how this is, seems to be a very unchristian thing on the whole here with everything going on especially defying the Pope, uh, from the Roman Catholic side at least. And you also have these proposals coming in from German nobility, and also, again, interest in Constantinople tied to this Byzantine emperor, which is stuff we'll go over in the next segment. And like I said, this all involves Byzantine power politics, the idea of you know performing a coup to gain the Byzantine throne, the Venetians benefiting once again from particular emperors, uh, against the Pisans and Genoese. And there's also some Byzantine patriarchs involved. And again, to be fair, from Dandolo's perspective and some of these Venetians and this exiled Byzantine emperor, some of these, uh, you know, basic plots to go and retake Constantinople, they're not entirely unjustified because of the people who had usurped them before, right? We talk about the Ouroboros of the Byzantine emperors. 
you know, it's just kind of an ugly crap show all around, right? So, you know, the, the point is it's it's kind of Satan casting out Satan. And in some strange way, there are Christian intentions that are mixed in with all these other things that people are kind of being blinded by their own arrogance, right? So I would say it's more of a tragic situation rather than, you know, looking at particularly these factions as being these inherently evil people in this overtly black and white sense, uh, but obviously not uh, pardoning the sins, especially when they don't want to repent and believe they haven't done anything wrong. And they're saying, F you, Pope, uh, we're going to do our own thing, right? And then the text talks about how a Byzantine coup came with great risks, just like the Crusades or just like any of these things, right? Uh, So it says... As coups are never sure things, particularly in the treacherous world of Byzantium, I guess with everything we went over, we can't really overstate that, the uh, treacherous world of the Byzantium emperors Ouroboros, it says the merits of German or the German proposal were discussed throughout the host, and most of the Franks were opposed to the idea. So even the Franks that continued on with the Crusades and didn't go with Simon de Montfort and the opposing Frankish clergy... They were still opposed to the idea of going and sacking Constantinople. So again, the Frankish folks seem to have a bit more repentance and a bit more awareness that they don't want to be part of these things that they're seeing to be sinful. Whereas the Venetians and these conspiring Byzantium aristocracy don't seem to have much of a problem about it, and they're the ones really orchestrating this. So again, if anything, the Eastern Orthodox who blame things on the Franks and the Pope, you look stupid. I have to say, I'm sorry. But when you go through this, at least in this particular instance with the Fourth Crusade, which is always one of the main things that's held in the face of Roman Catholics, blaming the Franks and the Popes for this is just absurd. And if anything, you should look to the Venetians and Byzantine uh, aristocracy itself and some of these Germanic interests as to this fourth crusade going to Constantinople. Continuing, throughout February and March, the Venetians prepared for the departure of the fleet. As the weather improved, Zarin fighters began harassing the city. So they're trying to go to Constantinople for their next crusade, their rogue crusade. And now the people of Zara are fighting back now that the winter's over. And the Frankish forces were depleted by desertions. So again, a lot of the Frankish crusaders didn't want to have any part of this, so they deserted. Uh, And then they were led by those who no longer had faith in their leaders. So some of these Frankish deserters led the charge to desert because they didn't have any faith in Dandolo and all of their machinations, right? And so it says, the decision to destroy Zara must have come from Venice itself, since only the Great Council had the authority to dispense with a Venetian possession. So the idea is that this is Venetian territory, um, and so they have to call to basically, you know, attack and destroy it because it seems that they they were going to leave and they didn't want these Zarin folks to come back and retake the city, so they just rather destroy it than allow them to come back, I guess. So it says the destruction of Zara also served the needs of the Venetian crusaders. Now this is very eerily similar to the Cathars but kind of like in an inverted way, where if you'll recall from Barbara's book, we talked about how some of the Cathars, they'd rather destroy their own castles that they had uh, because they knew they were going to lose. They knew the Crusades were going to overtake them. They would rather burn the mother down 
than be ruled by Rome. And here, these people, after they took Zara, they would rather burn the mother down than allow these Zaran folks and, you know, the, with ties to Hungary or whatever, take it back. And this is also perhaps similar to some folks in Byzantium who you hear stories from who would rather have the Muslims come and take the mother over <laughs> at Hagia Sophia than have the papal tiara be in charge of it. And is this also perhaps relevant to today? where the crazy radical left senses that they are losing and they hate that they're not in power anymore and that this abomination of Trump is in the White House and they'd rather burn the mother down and the liberty goddess so-called because they aren't in power. So if they can't be in power, they'd rather just have everybody else be miserable and they're going to destroy the economy with, you know, a bogus lockdown that's an exaggeration of a real virus, but perhaps not the threat that we all think it is. And, you know, is there nothing new under the sun? And so continuing, if they listen to the Pope, Pope Innocent had already made it clear that he wanted the city returned to the King of Hungary before he would lift their ban of excommunication. So all these guys had to do was not destroy this city, give it back to the Hungarian territory, and move on. They could even still go to Constantinople if they wanted, I suppose, but they would still be excommunicated if they did that. The excommunication would only be lifted if they didn't, uh, you know, take over the city and destroy it, put it back in its owners of Hungary and go do what they were told or, I guess, go back home, it would seem. But we know that the Venetians were largely unrepentant, whereas the Franks, generally speaking, tried to be. And it says, although the Pope was understandably angry about the attack, He recognized that for the Franks, at least, it was excused by necessity. They were in between a rock and a hard place and had some remorse and repentance. And unfortunately, he did not view the Venetians' predicament with equal charity. Instead, Innocent became convinced that Enrico Dandolo had hijacked the crusade for his own purposes, which, in truth, he had. And so thus, the next destination for these excommunicated Venetians in this rogue crusade was... Constantinople to jump into the all-devouring Ouroboros of Byzantium and Byzantine emperors performing coups against each other, which we know usually includes eye-gouging and tongue-cutting. And <laughs> again, the ironic thing is Dandolo had his eyes gouged out, or he went blind in Byzantium. I don't think they were gouged out, but something happened. He was attacked in Constantinople, and he went blind. Now he wants to go back there, and you know. There you go. That's the Ouroboros crap show of Byzantium. And they didn't restore order in Zara. They just sacked it, even though that was what they said their intentions were, right? So a lot of the things they claimed at the start did not happen. And a lot of the Frankish people and the people loyal to the Pope seemed to be the ones who had the most uh, honesty, integrity, and virtue in this whole affair. And the last point we make before we get to the summary and end this, interestingly enough, we have the Kabbalistic triangle here of Venice, Constantinople, and Germanic interests that we, you know, were kind of tying to the city of Prague in the uh, Kabbalah of Christendom episode, where we talked about the Kabbalistic Jewish interest. And remember, the Kabbalah Jews were the capitalist banking elite that had banking and mercantile ties. And isn't it very strange that 
all of this going on with Venice and Constantinople is tied to mercantile and economic interests along with political dominance. And it seems to be more about a guise of Christianity rather than putting it into practice or having some Christian intentions that in certain situations went out, but others, the satanic ones, went out. And nonetheless, they can't exactly mix. Is that the fate of the uh, iron and miry clay, as they say? You can't have one foot in the city of God door and one foot in the city of man and think that you're going to end up in the uh, right situation, I guess. That's the moral of the story. And also consider how particular Jewish historians like Norman Cantor admitted that the capitalist banking elite and aristocracy uh, who had the knowledge of the Kabbalah and intermarried throughout their own bloodlines and were the elite 5% of the Jews, well, they had a direct overlap with the Cathar heresy. And that's the very same heresy and crusade that the Pope ordered that was followed and took out, uh, you know, the Manichaean dualism that came from Constantinople. And the rogue crusade, which involves the Venetians who were tied to benefiting off the massacre of the Latins, well, they go back to Constantinople and sack it. And that's the very city that that Cathar heresy came from. And then later on, you have the Kabbalah triangle developing between those very same places. And it is purged, generally speaking, from France, where those evil Frankish kings have just been conspiring forever against Byzantium, and it's all their fault, along with the Pope, for the fall of Byzantium. Well, if you're being honest with yourself, I think you'd have to say at least a lot of these things are awash. But in this instance, the papacy and the Frankish nobility and foot soldiers even look way more Christian than anybody else in the entirety of the Eastern and Western Christian empire. So, let's do a five-point recap. Summarizing, the Franks, the Pope, and the clergy or legates tied to them or loyal to the Pope, whether they're Italian or not, on the whole, were against the destruction of Zara. Number two, Crusader Simon de Montfort and a French cleric who were all involved in the Cathar Crusade uh, years later, stood up to Dandolo and his hijackers and refused to participate in the destruction of the Catholic city of Zara and were obedient to the Pope in the same way that Frankish kings like Charlemagne were and even some of those Merovingians, those evil bad guys, right? Those elite baddies who just screwed everything up for all these different people, whether they're Nazis, Jews, Eastern Orthodox, or Gnostic LARPers and Freemasons. And they certainly did not want to go to Constantinople, and most of them GTFO'd after the whole Zara debacle. Point three. The French crusaders and company were, generally speaking, the only ones seeking absolution and were caught in moral dilemmas and had a lot of reservations about everything going on, whereas the Venetians pressed further and further, and as they pressed further in their arrogance, they met up with, surprise, surprise, the Ouroboros of Byzantium emperors conspiring and also Germanic interests. And there's a lot of issues over the course of this time with the German aristocracy, which was, you know, kind of the descendants of a lot of the Aryans and the Lombards and a lot of those issues that we've already talked about. And really the greatest crime that these French folks perpetrated was that they showed up for action 
but didn't have enough people who showed up and they didn't have enough money to pay. And it was a material thing that was held against them, not a spiritual thing, but they ended up making the right spiritual decisions in the end on the whole. Number four, the Venetians and Dandolo took no responsibility for their actions. They blamed the French and said, we're going to Zara because of you. It's your fault. And they thought they were in the right. They defied the Pope. They conspired with Byzantine emperors and Germanic kings' interests to destroy Zara and then headed to Constantinople for a coup and tried to restore order in Constantinople. Maybe some noble intentions mixed in, but did that really sustain? And was that period of the Latin aristocracy after that really having nothing to do with the papal decrees or uh, what the Pope would have wanted for all of this situation. But once they're there, the Pope still has to deal with them. So it's not like he's not going to work with them. That's just the unfortunate result of the whole situation. And this participation in the coup for the Byzantine throne is nothing really shocking considering Byzantines Ouroboros of emperor devouring throughout history, like we've mentioned with all the eye gouging and tongue cutting and you know, really culminating in the whole Irene and Constantine the Sixth debacle that we've already been through, at least uh, if people who are the paying members have listened to. And lastly, number five, the moral of the story. Mainly on the French side, in the papal loyalists, whether they're Italian or French, well, they tended to have far more venial sins than mortal ones, and if they did have mortal ones, they were generally much more quick to repent of them versus the venial sins on the other side, in the Venetian side of the coin, leading into the Byzantine Ouroboros, well, their venial sins led to mortal sins that they didn't repent of, and in instances where they could have had mercy and tried to figure out a better solution to help pay for the crusade and the lack of funds from the French side, well, they chose to blame the French for everything, and look where they all ended up in this giant crazy crap storm in Byzantium. Now, of course, there were French barons or different people that got caught up in these crusades and did not go with Simon de Montfort or obey the Pope, but that wasn't really the French culture on the whole. They were getting caught up in the all-devouring Ouroboros of the Kabbalah mercantile triangle of Venice, Constantinople, and the Germanic area. So once again, we'll let you decide. Was there just this horrible Frankish conspiracy and evil popes having all of these wicked machinations of usurping Byzantine power? Or were there a lot of people in Byzantium and their successors who polemicize overtly against Rome, who are actually just projecting a lot of the same things that they're guilty of onto the Roman Catholic Church inside of the equation during this time period, despite any sins coming from Rome? Can they not admit their own? Very similar to these different people who went and sacked Constantinople, that they couldn't admit their own sins, and their arrogance and pride consumed them, and then once you see the full, clearer picture, they end up looking foolish. And is that kind of the point? So we'll let you decide, and if you're a paid member, we'll see you in the next segment where we're going to talk more about the sack of Constantinople and all of the shenanigans that go with it. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times.
or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com. <laughs>